Well, turn with me to Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel 16. So, as Joel mentioned, today we're wrapping up this three-week conversation on idols. Hopefully we will not wrap up the conversation in general about idols, but we'll move on from here next week. By way of review, uh, we've been talking about these ancient pagan idols that the Israeli people were tempted to worship these statues that they would erect, these figurines that they'd worship. And of course, we don't relate to that. But, but in our lives, there's all these things out there that vie for our heart's affections, that, that we're tempted to go to, to worship, to put our trust in. And so we've been identifying what are those idols in each of our hearts. Uh, the question I've been asking you are, are the three S's. Where do I tend to go apart from God to find my, my sense of significance in life, my sense of security in life, my sense of satisfaction? What are those things that I tend to cling to and grab onto instead of God to find meaning and purpose and joy in life? And so we've been trying to unearth what are those idols inside of each of our hearts. Uh, One of you um, donated, I want to do this anonymously, but donated uh, a great little booklet called My Heart, Christ's Home. Many of you will be familiar with this. This has been around for, for a number of years. Uh, it's a great resource, and we put a bunch of them out by the flat screen out on, in the foyer, out by the credenza there. So pick one of these up. It's free to you uh, at the end. But what it does is it, it, it's this analogy of a person taking Jesus through the house of their lives and going through the different rooms and seeing some of the things that are represented in that room. And, of course, Jesus is wanting to move into the house. And so, but I wanna, it's a great resource as a way of identifying some of the idols. So I wanted to give you that. Uh, last week... Uh, we talked about the issue of attachment, okay? These, these things in life that are created things that God gives us. They're, they're good gifts that he gives us, and we're meant to enjoy them. Food, work, family, children, uh, you name it. And God gave us all these great gifts, and he intends for us to experience him through the gifts that he gives us. And in an ordered attachment, when, when our hearts are attached appropriately, appropriately to created things, there are ways that we experience God's grace, right? Work can be a great way where I, where I experience God's grace. Food, family, all these things can be great ways to experience God through the gifts he gives us. There are also ways through which we can serve God, right? I can serve God with my health. I can serve God with my wealth. I can serve God in my work. That's how God designed it. He would be our God, and all these created things are there to experience him, to serve him. But of course, idolatry happens when we get a disordered attachment. And these created things that are intended to be windows into our relationship with God instead become what we talked about as stumbling blocks, Okay? We start clinging to them. We start asking them to give us security and significance and satisfaction. And we start receiving from them and going to them rather than to God. And so we're talking about what does it mean to live with an ordered attachment, not a disordered attachment to God's good gifts. So one of you sent me an email this week about the ultimate example of a disordered attachment. This, was the, this is the uh, picture I received via email. Okay. <laughs> This is the ultimate disordered attachment, right? It actually is, right? This ring that this creature finds and he turns it into his precious and he, he says, everything I want is in this ring and of course it destroys him. That's a, that's a great picture of idolatry. 
So don't become Gollum. That's the lesson. If that, if all you take away in three weeks, don't become Gollum. So today, this final passage that we're going to look at on the issue of idolatry, and I'll just let you know, this is chapter 16, a very intense, even very graphic uh, passage. This is definitely rated M for mature, okay? Just letting you know that. I, I was reading a commentary this week, and the commentary said, this is uh, one of the chapters least likely to be read out loud in church. <laughs> literally said that, and you'll see why. Some of you would send me emails uh, saying that I've gone too far, but it's right in the Word, so you can't. Um, but what, what we're going to see here is, is God confronting the city of Jerusalem... Okay, the capital city, which of course represents the people too, but he's confronting the city of Jerusalem with its long-standing idolatry. And, and you're going to get a God in this, this chapter who is very raw, who is very unedited, who's being very vulnerable and passionate. Okay, and you're going to see his heart, how much the idolatry of his people pains him, how much distress it causes him. And I just want to say this chapter, it reads like a high school breakup song, okay? And I, I really mean it, all, all the, the passion, uh, the longing, the betrayal, the angst, the anger, all, all of that is, you'll, you'll see that coming out of God's heart in a very unedited, very raw, and very graphic way. So consider this a breakup love song to the city of Jerusalem, which of course represents the people in the city, God's chosen people. And it's such a long passage. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to take it chunk by chunk. We'll read a couple verses. I'll stop and make some comments and we'll read through most of the chapter. All right. So hear God's breakup love song with Jerusalem. Verse one through five. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was Amorite and your mother a Hittite. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in clothes. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. So God's talking about the city of Jerusalem before he entered into a relationship with her. And of course, the the city represents the people. And he's basically reminding them, hey, Uh, you were nothing before I came across you, before I chose you. Your mother was an, your mother was a Hittite, your father an Amorite. That's, that's a dig. Okay. And he's saying, you basically, you have pagan origins and that's true of the city. Jerusalem existed before the Jews came in and made it the capital city. God is saying, you were just some pagan city before, before I chose you. And he uses a very graphic image, doesn't he? he? He's describing Jerusalem like a a baby that's been born. And in the ancient world, you had this practice of infanticide that people would, would kill their babies. And, and abortion was a very risky procedure back then. So what most people would do with unwanted babies is they'd give birth and then they'd just leave them out, exposed to the elements, just to die. And that's, that happened all the time in the ancient world. And, and God is saying, that's like what your origin was. You were nothing. Nobody, nobody cared about you. You were just this random neglected city before I noticed you. Okay. Verse 6 through 8. 
Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew, you who are naked and bare. Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. So God describing how he came along this city and chose her as his own. And there were two stages in that. First, he comes along and he basically plays the role of a father to this city, right? You were there, lying there, and I became your father. I gave you life. And then as, as she grows up and becomes mature enough, he comes along again. And now he basically becomes her, not father, but her what? Her husband, yeah, right. And that's the main metaphor that runs through this passage. I became your husband. He says, I spread the corner of my garment over you. That's an ancient idiom for entering into marriage. And here's the key verse, uh, verse, end of verse 8. I gave you my solemn oath, and I entered into a covenant with you. Okay? That's the key word in this section. I entered into a covenant. I became your husband. Now, we all know covenantal language, okay? In God's role, it would be this. I, God, take you, Jerusalem, right, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, sickness and health, uh, riches, poverty, to love and to cherish as long as we both shall live. God saying, I entered into that kind of covenant with you. You're nothing before I met you. But I entered into a covenant and you became mine. I was bound to you. You were bound to me. I was stuck with you and you were stuck with me till death do us part. I became your husband. He's talking about the city of Jerusalem. Of course, he's ultimately talking about his people, right? The Jewish people at this time. And then he goes on in verse 9 to describe how he was as a husband to his bride. Look at verse 9. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put leather sandals on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. And I put a ring on your nose, earrings on your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was fine flour, honey, and olive oil. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the sovereign Lord. He's describing this honeymoon phase in their relationship, where he played this role of an incredibly loving and generous husband who just spoils his bride, lavishes on her these generous gifts. He mentions specifically these gifts of clothing, these gifts of jewelry, these gifts of of food. And, And because of these gifts, she became beautiful and her fame spread. And of course, her fame was to reflect the fame and beauty of her husband, God, who had given her all of these good things. And that really does describe the history of the city of Jerusalem when you think about it. It started from humble means, 
But eventually David entered the city. It became the capital city. And God made this city beautiful, and he made it famous. And I think what he's describing here is the heyday of Jerusalem's history at the time of David and then his son, King Solomon, when it was this famous city. It was a beautiful city, and and kings and queens from other places would come and hear about it, and they would come to receive wisdom from the king in Jerusalem. It really was that kind of a city, and the city was meant to reflect the fame of of the God of that city. And of course, that was always God's plan, not just for the city of Jerusalem, but for his people, right? Beginning back with Abraham, he said, I'm choosing you, I'm entering into a covenant with you, and I'm going to bless the socks off of you. (laughs) I'm going to bless you, and through you, through blessing you, I'm going to bless all the nations. I want to make you a light to the nations. When they see your beauty, when they see your fame, when they see who you are, they'll recognize... There is a God among them, and we want to know that God. And so he's describing this honeymoon phase in the relationship. Kind of the high school version of, you never had it so good (laughs) as when you had me. And we're going to see that honeymoon phase ends real quickly. Verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty, and you used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by, and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. Such things should not happen, nor should they ever occur. You also took the fine jewelry I gave you, the jewelry made of my gold and silver, and you made yourself for yourself male idols engaged in prostitution with them. And you took your embroidered clothes to put on them, and you offered my oil and incense before them. Also, the food I provided for you, the fine flour, olive oil, and honey I gave to you, you offered as fragrant incense before them. This is what happened, declares the sovereign Lord. Okay, about 21 times in this chapter, he calls Jerusalem a prostitute, an unfaithful wife. And that's the issue, right, of I, of I told you. have been unfaithful to me. And look again at verse 15, because I think this really captures the heart of idolatry. But you trusted in your beauty, and you used your fame to become a prostitute. So remember all that beauty that I lavished on you, all these great gifts that I gave to you, your beauty and your fame? You actually took these things that were intended to be blessings for me, that were intended to show you how gracious I am, that was supposed to be a source of our relationship. You took those very gifts, and you used those things, and you put your trust in those things instead of me, and used those in your prostitution. Okay, this is the whole conversation we've been having. These things that were supposed to be a window into our relationship, those very gifts have become a stumbling block, because now you're going to them instead of me. And you're trusting in them. You've become prideful because of the very things that I gave you. Isn't that how idolatry happens? We take God's good gifts and we start trusting in them. And these good gifts actually become a stumbling block in our relationship with God. And that's what happened in Israel's history. Uh, Two forms of idolatry, just to let you know, that Israel was... uh, participating in. The first is one we normally think of, which what I would call religious 
idolatry. And you see that in what I just read. They actually went after other pagan gods of the surrounding cultures like Asherah and Baal, these other ancient gods, and they worshipped those gods instead of Yahweh. And what he says in this passage, you know, he says, you took the very gifts I gave you, the clothes, the jewelry, and the food, and you used the very gifts I gave you to engage in your prostitution with other gods. Okay, this would be like the high schooler, right, saying to, to the, the ex, uh, ex-girlfriend or ex-boyfriend, depending on where you are, right, not only did you cheat on me, but, but you, you took him to our restaurant, the restaurant I showed you, you took him there, right? Like our lookout place. You went there. It's this high hand. You, you didn't just cheat. It was in your face. The very things that we had done, you took those things and used them to go off and do your thing with other gods. You see, you could feel the, the resentment, the, the sense of betrayal in God in this. So there's a religious idolatry. The other idolatry that we haven't talked about as much is what I would call a, a political idolatry. Take a look at verse 26. You see it in this paragraph. Uh, Verse 26, you engaged in prostitution with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors. Uh, Look at verse 28. You engaged in prostitution with the Syrians too because you were insatiable. And even after that, you were still not satisfied. Then you increased your promiscuity to include Babylonia, land of merchants. But even with this, you were not satisfied. Okay, so you got to remember, there's a couple hundred years where, where this has been going on, and the international scene is always shifting, the, the different kingdoms that come in power. And so you've got Israel that stands as this little kingdom surrounding all these big kingdoms. And, and as different kingdoms came in power, they start running to some other kingdom to try to form an alliance to try to protect themselves. So if Assyria is, is big, they're going to go down to Egypt and try to form an alliance with Egypt. If Assyria is big, they'll, you know, if, if Egypt's big, they'll try to form an alliance with Syria or Babylon, whatever. And all along, God had said, I want to be your king. Trust me. I will protect you. I will provide for you. Come to me for your protection and security. And for hundreds of years, they're saying, we, we, we can't trust this God. We can't. So we got to form alliances with these other nations. And, and they just kept going from nation to nation. So you've got a religious idolatry. You've also got a, a political idolatry. And you can feel God's sense of betrayal in this. I wanted to just catalog some of the things that God says to Jerusalem in, in this chapter sort of synthesize things. Uh, Here's what he says. You prefer strangers to your own husband. What a a telling statement. He's saying, I want to be your husband. You prefer these strange gods to your own husband. Uh, You have forgotten the days of your youth. So you don't remember the days of your youth. Remember when you were kicking and screaming in your own blood? You've forgotten how hopeless you were, how helpless you were before I came. That's long history, long past to you. Uh, you're so weak-willed. <laughs> you might set your hearts to try to do something for me, but you're so quick to abandon me. And here's the kicker for me. You are insatiable. <laughs> he said, you, your hunger for other lovers knows no better. It, it cannot be satisfied. You go to one, and then you need another, and you need another. And I just was thinking about this. And I thought, isn't, isn't that true <laughs> about even the church, even God's people today in this context of, of idolatry, all these other things that we go after instead of God, it is so true. We, we prefer strangers. Things like money, sex, power, achievement, image, all these things we've talked about. And we forget, 
We so easily forget what God did in rescuing us and saving us. We forget our first love with him. And we get enamored by all these other new fangled things. Oh, we're so weak-willed. <laughs> Good intentions. Um, but so often we're weak-willed. And I think this especially, this insatiable. Our hearts are constantly going after all these things, trying to find happiness, trying to find security, trying to find joy. And God is saying, I am right here. I've been here all along. I am your husband. I want to be your husband. So what is God's response to all of this in this chapter? We're not finished reading yet. Uh, In a word... His response is jealousy. Okay, that word actually shows up in this passage. But before I read it, that's what this whole chapter is about. It is about the jealousy of the living God. And I don't mean jealous of his people. He is jealous for his people. It is, it is the righteous jealousy of a husband for his wife or of a wife for her husband. It, it is an appropriate possessiveness of a spouse and a righteous refusal to want to share your spouse with anybody else. And that is the essence of this chapter. God is jealous for his covenant people. And that jealousy plays out in two ways in this passage. It plays out in judgment and anger, and it plays out in mercy and restoration. So let's look first at the judgment and anger. That's, that's kind of the focus uh, of this passage. So let me read to you God's response in verse 35. Um, this gets pretty vivid. Get ready. Therefore, you prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Okay, just picture high school breakup. It's all right. Uh, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Because you poured out your wealth and exposed your nakedness and your promiscuity with your lovers and because of all your detestable idols and because you gave them your children's blood, therefore I'm going to gather all your lovers with whom you found pleasure, those you loved as well as those you hated. I will gather them against you from all around and will strip you in front of them and they will see all your nakedness. I will sentence you to the punishment of women who commit adultery and who shed blood. I will bring upon you the blood vengeance of my wrath, here's our word, and jealous anger. Then I will hand you over to your lovers, and they will tear down your mounds and destroy your lofty shrines. They will strip you of your your clothes and take your fine jewelry and leave you naked and bare. They will bring a mob against you who will stone you and hack you to pieces with their swords. They will burn down your houses and inflict punishment on you in the sight of many women. I will put a stop to your prostitution and you will no longer pay your lovers. Okay, least likely to be read on a Sunday, right? A very vivid picture. The thing that's most interesting to me is verse 39, where God says, you know what I'm going to do to you? I'm going to hand you over to your lovers. In his jealousy, he's basically, you know what? Fine. You want your lovers? Fine. You can have them. I will hand you over to them, and you will find out everything there is to find about your lovers. You're going to find out they don't care for you. (laughs) They're not out for your interests. They just want to use you. The minute you're not useful to them, they will turn on you. They will strip you bare. They will hack you to pieces. And that is true of the religious idols. That was certainly true of the political idols. The the moment they don't have a use for you, 
they will turn on you. I am going to hand you over. I'm going to give you the thing you want, and you will discover firsthand you never had it so good as when you had me. Because there is no lover who will love you the way I will love you, and you will find that out firsthand. And they did. And Jerusalem was destroyed five, five years after this, sometime within five years of when this was written. And again, I think that plays out in idolatries, even today. <laughs> Sometimes God just says, you know what? Is this what you want? I'm going to hand you over to these things. And you will discover these things that you want so much, money, it doesn't give a rip about you. Okay? Other people's approval. You think people care about you the way I care about you? Your image, uh, you know, your, you name it, achievement. Do you think those things care about you? No, they don't care about you. They will use, they will turn on you. Only I can love you the way that you're designed to be loved. So that's the first way as jealousy comes out is I'm going to hand you over. You're going to find out. But then ultimately it plays out in this picture of mercy and restoration. Take a look at verse 42. Then my wrath against you will subside and my jealous anger will turn away from you. I will be calm and no longer angry. All the way down to verse 60. I'm obviously doing some summarizing of this passage here. Yet, verse 60, I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. And that's what God's going to do. Israel's going to be wiped out, judged, but God is going to take a remnant of Israelites in exile. He will bring them back into the city and the city will again flourish and God will establish his everlasting covenant. And this is the other side of his jealousy. The one side is his anger and his wrath, but the other side is this. <laughs> Here's the thing. He still loves his bride <laughs> after all she's done. He is jealous. He's still jealous for her. He made a covenant with her. And he's not about to abandon that covenant. He's not about to abandon his bride because he is jealous for her. And that, that's the thing that struck me most as I, as I read this passage this week. I realized, you know what? God is stuck in this passage. Like the, the living God, the all-powerful living God, he is stuck with this wayward wife. And so he's going to judge. He's going to punish and discipline. But he's stuck with her. <laughs> he made a vow. He's not about to abandon his bride. It's just like that high school who, who's so furious with this person for che- cheating on him, but he still loves her. He still wants to be with her or, or a spouse who gets cheated on and there's so much anger, but where am I going to go? You're my love. You're the love of my life. I'm stuck. What do I do? And so you have this God who is dealing with that stuckness and the way he does it is through judgment, but through ultimate mercy and reconciliation and restoration of his people. Isn't that beautiful? So that is the picture of our God that I wanted to leave us with in this conversation about idolatry. That's what I wanted to conclude with, is is to leave us all with this picture of this God who is jealous for his people. And to make this personal, to leave you with this idea, God is jealous for you. He is jealous for your heart. He does not want to share you with other lovers. He doesn't want other things taking up the place in your heart that only he wants to take. And I want to say, there's a downside to that jealousy. 
Okay? The downside is this. When you go after other things, when you're pursuing your money, when you're pursuing your reputation, when you're trying to get people's approval, all these idols, and you, you think, does God really care that much? I mean, God's out. Does, is this that big of a deal to him? Answer, yes, it's a big deal to him. He really cares. He says, you are cheating on me. And so it ups the stakes <laughs> about what obedience is supposed to look like. You're not just disobeying me. You are cheating on me. And I don't want to share you with other gods. Now, the upside of his jealousy is precisely that. (laughs) He cares. (laughs) The God of the universe really does care. He's not just some guy up there, sort of some, some distant authority. But he really does care. He has entered into a covenant with you. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he has said, I, God, take you to be my spouse, to love and to cherish forever, forever. I want you. I don't just want your obedience. I I don't just want your, your good behavior. I want your heart. I want it all. And guess what I think God would say? You want me too, whether you realize it or not, all your searching, all that insatiable longing for other things, the different things you go to to try to get security in life and joy and fulfillment, ultimately that is a search for me. And none of those things will satisfy you the way that I alone can satisfy you. So turn. Turn from your idols and return to me. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods besides me. God is jealous for you. So I want to leave us, and we're going to spend a little time ending the service today. What is the response that is required, that is asked of us? In a word, that response is repentance. Okay? This is back in chapter 14. We read this last week. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Repent. Turn from your idols. Now, if anybody wonders what that word repent means, it means just that. The Hebrew word means to turn. There's a, it's a two-fold process. Turning from an idol and turning to God. You turn from this and you return to God. In the New Testament, Paul's analogy is the analogy of clothes. He says, you have new life in Christ. So put off... The old clothes that you used to wear, these old practices, these old idols, and put on the new clothes. In this series, I've been using the language of attachment, right? We get attached to things. So what you need to do is detach your heart from these idols and reattach your heart to the living God, okay? There's always this renouncing, this letting go, this abandoning, and this taking on, this pursuing. That is what repentance is. So I would like to end this series by having you, hopefully you've done this by now, identify what is the one main idol that you're tempted to cling to. Hopefully you identified it this last week. But I want you to pick something. And what we're going to do is just take some time to consider what would repentance look like for you with that particular idol. Okay, we spent the first two weeks just saying, let's just raise awareness. We're not changing anything. We're just being aware of what they are. Now is the time for action, okay? Now is the time. I'm aware. I see this. Now, what are you going to do about it? And that's going to look different for, for every one of us. But I'm going to give you some space 
to think about what would repentance look like. And before I give you space, I'm going to give you a couple suggestions about what a repentance could look like. Okay? This could not have been timed better. You, you almost might think there's a God who did this. Um, <laughs> do you know that Lent starts on Wednesday? Seriously, was not planned this way on my part. But Lent begins. Ash Wednesday is this Wednesday. Beautiful timing. And most of you know Lent is this 40-day period of repentance, of confession leading up to this joyful celebration of Easter. And so here's one thing I might suggest. Maybe what repentance would look like for you is fasting from your idol during Lent. It's a common thing people do. And normally we think of fasting as we we fast from food, right? There's a kind of food we fast from, or maybe it's alcohol. Um, But you can fast from just about any object or activity. You know, you've looked at this. If if there's something you've identified in your life that is a stumbling block that's getting in the way of God, one way of repentance is to fast from it. Just remove it from the equation, at least for a period of time, to kind of restart your heart's attachment, all right? And the idea of fasting is you you stop doing this and you take that time to then focus on God. So you maybe you don't eat, you know, for a day. And the time you would have spent during meals, you instead take time to be in prayer or to be in God's word. But maybe your idol is something that you could actually fast from. I mean, maybe your idol is food or alcohol. So you could fast from it. Uh, What would that thing be? Maybe um, for you, you've, you've like realized, man, social media is just killing me. My Instagram, my Facebook, it is eating up so much time. It gets in the way. Maybe you fast from social media for the next 40 days. How awesome would that be? And you take the time instead to read a great Christian book, to study the word, to pray. Uh, Maybe your phone, maybe your smartphone has become an idol. And you say, you know, I'm going to fast from picking this thing up first thing in the morning. I'm not going to go straight to my inbox. I'm not going to go straight to my newsfeed. Instead, I'm going to go straight to God's word and spend 15 minutes there, and then I'll pick up the phone. Uh, maybe it's shopping. Maybe you're just a shopper. You're like, I'm going to fast from shopping. Okay? There's a bunch of ways that we can actually remove something, and the key, of course, is to take the time and energy you would have taken for that thing and replace it with God in some way. That's, that's the idea behind fasting. And Get creative about what a fast might look like for you. And my encouragement would be this. Get drastic with a fast, okay? Like, get kind of crazy drastic with it. If anyone says, whoa, let's be balanced, none of us in this room are in danger of being imbalanced with our idols, okay? So I want to just be a voice that says, get crazy, get drastic. You probably won't go too far. You won't err on that side. So if anyone needed permission, permission to get a little bit drastic with these things. It's only 40 days after all. All right, um, Another suggestion, for some of us, our idols aren't things we can fast from, right? Can't quit my job for 40 days. Uh, Can't abandon my kids for 40 days. And so the question would be what we talked about last week. How can I turn this stumbling block into a window into my relationship with God, right? How can I maybe actively experience God's grace through this thing? So last week I talked about wealth as an obvious idol, Well, what would it look like in the next 40 days to really experience God through my wealth? Be grateful for all these things. Every time I walk into my house, say, Lord, thank you for this marvelous house you've given me. Every time I step into my car, Lord, thank you. This is is an example of your blessing to me. 
Uh, and then how can I take this thing and, and use it uh, as a way to serve God? You know, work is a big idol for, for a lot of people. Well, how can I experience my work? Not as just working for a paycheck or working to justify my life, but how can I experience the days, Monday through Friday, as a way of serving Jesus? I am working unto the Lord in this time. How can I change my posture towards this thing? And then finally, one last one, I would suggest maybe there's just a a daily inner conversation that you want to commit to, this discipline uh, with some idol in your life. So it, it might be just as you go throughout your day and you experience the tug of that idol, okay? So, you know, you find out that some friends are going on this epic, like, trip in that jealousy. You know, it's like, oh, I would love to have that kind of life. Um, or you feel the pull of, I hope all these people are really liking me right now and I want to act in a way that they like me. There's like 300 of them in this room all at the same time. Um, right? Or you, whatever you're tempted, and you, you feel the tug. It would just be to commit to this, this inner process of detachment and attachment where you just say, you know what? I feel your tug right now. I feel, I'm going to acknowledge it. But I'm going to speak the truth in this moment, which is this. You're lying to me, <laughs> idol. You promised me something, and you cannot fulfill that promise. You will not live up to the promises you're, you're making. You will not lead to the ultimate satisfaction, security, and significance that I'm feeling like you might give me in this moment. You're lying to me. And I, I say no. And then in that moment, actively turn to God and say, God, I want to invite you into this moment. Um, I'm feeling it. Here it is. You see it again. But I want to invite you in. Lord, in some way in this moment, Reveal to me that you're better. Reveal to me who you are. I, w- I want to want you instead of this thing. Maybe it's just some kind of inner process that you go through that's moment by moment. All right? So what would repentance look like for you? Here's what I want to do. I want to actually give you a minute of silence to consider what that might be. All right? So why don't we just, you can close your eyes. You can... Keep them open. But we're going to take a moment of silence and just sit with the Lord and say, what would be right for me in this season of my life? And then after that, we'll, we'll close by celebrating communion together. Well, Lord, 
remind us that you are better than the things we go after. Remind us that you alone can bring the things that we most desire. And I pray that you would bless our efforts towards repentance. I think of the verse that Daniel read, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And that's what we want to do. We want to give you every effort we can and work it out. But remembering, for it is God who works in you, both to even want and to do according to your purpose. And so we need you to work within us to bring about the repentance that we might desire. So bless those efforts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.